Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good, morning. good to see you guys here. So, yeah, great to have everybody. Uh, and it's weird. It's like every week we got different people kind of coming and going, and I get it. There's a lot of people that are still not very comfortable uh, being here. I think we're taking some good precautions on what we're doing. But uh, next week, one of the things I'm sure you saw in the news, uh, Governor Brown has ordered that whack. Wax, that wax, that mass, maybe wax is coming next, but masks are required in, uh, in any buildings like this, so starting next week, it actually starts on the 24th, so it's not this week, but you guys are awesome, you're ahead of the schedule for most of you, sorry, <laughs> we know you forgot yours, but you're okay, it's, again, it's just starting next week, you're going to have to have the mask on, so please do that, uh, I'm going to try and see if I can find some, so I'll have some here, because it's going to be required, you've got to have them, so... Uh, I think it's for everyone. I'll try and get some clarification for that, okay? Um, we are actually, you know what? Yes, we are because of this reason. We're starting children's ministry next week. So, yes, it's going to be required for everyone. So that's another thing that's been really hard with this transition is I know that people want to come to church, but some have little guys, and it's hard to have them just sit in the main sanctuary. So for those of you who are braving it out, thank you. Uh, but we'll have the children's ministry going next week. So. Uh, you know, pray for that, because that's something, too. You know, I called them last week. They're all little contaminators. So we're, you know, so, so we're going to do our very best to, you know, minimize the contamination. But uh, please talk to your kids, and, and let's make sure that they understand they got to have the mask on. We're going to try and come up with maybe some uh, one-time use crayons or something back there. and just, just everything that we can do to try and make it safe and, and good for everybody. So that's happening next week. Uh, we're also cutting grass next week, so anybody who can uh, and is able to help, awesome. Bring a lot more if you got it. Uh, we'll do it. Lord willing, I might have just bought a riding lawnmower, so um, a really nice one that, that I had tried to get before, and it, it got sold, and the guy contacted me, and, and it was too big for what he was doing, and it's perfect for what we're doing. Um, so we might possibly have that here next week. It's kind of expensive, so as a church budget, it wasn't the greatest move, but after doing 10 years of push mowing on this place, we're like, you know, it's time to, to have a riding lawnmower that we can take and, and not have destroyed here, you know, and not have to worry about other churches because that was the problem before. We were all using one, uh, and it, it just didn't work out because things got broken, and then it was hard feelings between churches, and it's like, we'll just have our own. We'll haul it back and forth and get it done. But uh, either way, we're going to be cutting grass next week. So whether it's push mowing or, or riding lawnmower and cheering that guy on, we're doing it. Okay, so uh, it's going to be next week after the service. Uh, we've also got, um, there's some toiletry donations back there. So like shaving cream and stuff like that, it was given as donations. So if you need anything, take a look back there, see if there's anything that you can use. Cause if it's not taken, it's, it's just going to be given to the next church. So anything that you can use, grab it and go uh, count it as a blessing. We also too, um, we decided this morning, we, we went ahead cause we can't have our, our water like we used to have it where it's everybody's using the same thing. Uh, so I have bottled water back there, and we wipe it down before the service. So we're going to start doing that, so that if you guys need some water during the service, uh, you can do it. It's all been wiped down before you get to it, but uh, just make sure you keep it with you and take it home, okay, when it's all done. So just all the little things, and if, you, if you're if you here and say you notice something that we're not noticing, uh, that you can see being a problem or possibly making somebody uncomfortable with all the COVID-19 stuff, please speak up. Let me know. You know, share your heart. And, and if it's just something we're overlooking, something we're not thinking about, uh, please tell us. You know, we, we want to make sure that people feel comfortable and safe when they come in this place. And I'll do everything that we can to do that. Uh, we spend a lot of time, like, Lysoling all the seats. And then we have wipe everything down in the building. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes into what we do before you guys get here. Um, so every, everything that we can think of that needs to be touched has been wiped down. So, again, and then you've got the cleaning supplies in the back there, too. So you've got the sanitizer and you've got the Clorox wipes. And please remember, if you are out and you find something like that, especially like the wipes are getting really hard to find, uh, Clorox wipes or um, any of the hand sanitizer, any Lysol, those kinds of things, please bring it. If financially it's a, it's a problem where it's like, you know, I, I can buy it, but I really don't have the money to do that, just let us know what it is. We'll pay you back, okay? I don't want anybody to have a burden with that. We just, we need it. And as more and more people start coming, I need to make sure that we have these supplies, okay? So um, the other thing, too, with us entering into phase two, seating is no longer going to be an issue except for we have to keep the uh, six-foot distance, so that part we'll have to figure out, but, um, you know, again, like we're doing with families in each row, we're trying to keep it at that, trying to keep the space between them. Uh, but it's up to now, I think 50 people, if I'm not mistaken, can be inside the building, which is perfectly fine for us. 
Um, but, you know, again, that just be flexible. Remember, blessed are the flexible. We're trying to figure this out as we go, kind of get all the seating and everything done right. So just pray for us that we have wisdom and all that too, okay? Our new daily breads are so bad. Daily bread's back there too. So, yep, got some good stuff there. So lots of announcements, lots of things. So let's get in the Word, though. Let's get into that now. So if you guys would, open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. And I do want to start out by just saying Happy Father's Day uh, to dads out there. Um, I, I wrote something. I'm just going to read it because I was thinking of this. I actually wrote this first for you guys, and then I put it on the, the church uh, Facebook page. But what I wrote was, Thank you to all you dads out there who faithfully serve your families and loved ones in this crazy upside-down world that we live in. Um, your presence and your example to your family is a blessing and a much-needed anchor in these times and in the lives of those around you. You may not realize the powerful effect that you have upon their lives, but you do. Remain godly, remain strong, and servant-hearted in the position that God has chosen you for. Because if you have children and you're in this situation, God has chosen you for that. And by His grace, you will be the blessing that God raised you up to be for the sake of others. Um, as this world is just kind of spinning out of control, it seems, right now I, I feel so strongly that, that especially not only fathers but men in general need to step up. They need to step up and they need to lead because there's a lot of really bad leadership occurring right now. Um, there's a lot of things happening, and, and I won't even get political because I believe the whole political thing is out of control on every side. Yeah. Um, things are just so bad right now that we, we are lacking leadership. Um, and we have an advantage as being Christians, as men. We have the advantage of having Christ in us. We have the advantage of the Holy Spirit leading us and directing us, empowering us and strengthening us. Um, and right now this world desperately needs you. It, it desperately needs people to stand up and show kindness, goodness, gentleness, strength, firmness when needed, um, all those things. But, but this reactionary thing that we are seeing happen within our co country where we have just one extreme going after the other extreme and it's getting nasty on both sides and I'm even seeing it within churches, it's just, this is not good. This doesn't represent Christ well at all, everything. So, you know, this is a time where, again, when I think about fathers, and of course this is for mothers, this is for women, this is for everyone. Right now, you must lead by your example. You must lead. You must take a stand and do the right thing. Uh, because people desperately need to see your example. Because they need to see Christ. They, it's more important than you. They need to see what a person that is controlled by Christ, how they act, because they need to see Jesus. That's what this world needs more than anything else at these moments, is they need Jesus. Because the other leadership that they're seeing is, is not a good example. So please, just uh, this Father's Day especially, I, I really want the dads to think about that, you know. What kind, of, what kind of man are we inside of our homes? What, are, what kind of man are we at our jobs? What kind of man are we uh, in the things that we do? And how are we leading? Because it's really essential right now. So that's just my thoughts on Father's Day. Last week, though, you know, we were reminded of the establishment of God's upward-facing bow. If you did not hear the message last week, um, of course, I'm talking about the rainbow, we call it, the rainbow, and in some translations you have that. Uh, when the Bible was written, what's that? I about three rainbows Did you? Yeah, you think about it, right? <laughs> it, it, it did, it made me really think about things, because you think about that bow, and again, when they used that word in Hebrew, when they were describing this bow, it was a weapon of war. It was a bow, it was an archer's bow pointed towards heaven. That's how they described it, because that's what it looked like. But it was pointed towards heaven and not towards us. And when we think about the covenant that God made during that time, that he would never destroy every living creature once again by a worldwide flood, 
the bow was pointed towards heaven and not towards us. It was letting him, it was a constant reminder of the judgment that was cast upon really Jesus Christ is what it was was pointing to. He would incur the judgment that would be inflicted. But it would never once again be poured out universally on mankind for the, the wickedness and the evil that was committed against him. It was a sign that would remain forever as long as this earth exists. A sign to remind us that regardless of the worthiness of the recipient, people can be committing the grossest of sins, and yet a rainbow still appears reminding them that God will never judge the world as he did that day for wickedness by destroying the entire earth. And that, that's amazing to me. That's the thing that I hope you remember whenever you see a rainbow, is that no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad you get, it's a reminder of God's covenant. And we know, as I talked last week, there will be a time where the earth is going to be destroyed, but it's going to be destroyed by fire. Um, but salvation has already come, right? He's already made a way of escape. He's already made a way out for those who are, who are again, looking forward towards the Messiah. And we should be grateful for that. We should be grateful that we live in that time. It's important, too, that we remember that this was an unconditional covenant, and that's important because it's not dependent upon us. This was, this was a promise that God made himself, and it was towards everyone, but it, it was unconditional. It wasn't something based on the worthiness of the recipients or the obedience of the recipients. It was something that was unconditional. He was going to keep this promise, and he is keeping the promise. However many thousands of years, this could be, what, four, five, six thousand years later now, we still see what? We still see a rainbow. How many wicked generations have passed? How many times where if God just said, enough, I wiped them out once, I'll do it again. You know, I mean, or like maybe a mom says, yeah, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like he could have done it over and over and over and over again. But yet he still we still see the rainbow reminding us that he's just not going to he's not going to do that once again. Today, we're going to see another example of just how gracious God can be, even in the midst of really some of our greatest failures. Chapter 9, verse 18 begins with this. It says, Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Now in chapter 10, I don't want to make too light of this, because in chapter 10 we're going to spend some time in this, but we're going to see how all the nations really came into being from this time. They came forth from these three men and their families. So that just the entire existence, human population, population since then, came from these three men and their families. But first, I want you to show, I want you to see how right after God made this covenant that he was not going to destroy the earth once again because of human wickedness, verse 20 begins really with the horrible account of Noah's first epic failure, and it's recorded in Scripture, like one of his worst mistakes he ever made. Recorded for us, all these thousands, hundreds and thousands of years later, for us to actually read about his greatest mistake. And it begins innocently enough, when you read verse 20, it says, Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. Sounds great, right? He just came out of the boat, life is starting over, they're repopulating the earth, things are happening, kids moved out of the house, it's like, hey, things are getting back to normal. It's like, this is happening, right? And it starts off by saying, Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. Now, remember, Noah, like his father, was a farmer. He's described right here how? Man a man of the soil. To me, this implies that he was really kind of a blue-collar, hard-working man, is what I get from that. One that embraced his responsibility to provide for his family, and for that matter, really all of future generations. What did he do when he got out of the boat? He started planting gardens and food and, and so that he could provide for his family and these future generations. He got to work. Now, he wasn't just sitting around waiting for God to drop all the provisions in his lap. 
Nor did he expect his sons to do all the hard lifting from this, the heavy lifting from this point forward. I mean, after all, he built the boat, right? You wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for me. You know, he could have pulled that. He's like, these are my golden years. This is my golden years, you know, 600 years old by this time. I'm going to go and just relax. I already, like, saved the world. Now I'm going to, you guys go out and do this. You get busy. You plant these things. I'm just going to kind of oversee the operations. No, he was down to earth. He was hardworking. He was a provider. He was a provider. And the Bible described him as a man of the soil. I started thinking about this, and I've had many discussions like this about my, with my kids. Um, for my sons, you know, I've, I've stressed to them many times, and, and I know they already know this, but just as a dad, something I'd like to pass on to, to others is I tell them, I, I don't care what you do in life. I just want you to be that kind of man. A man of the soil. I, I don't necessarily mean that I want you to be a farmer or somebody who's a day laborer or anything like that. I'm not saying that. I want you to have whatever you choose to do in life, whatever it is, I want them to be looked upon as being hard workers. No matter what worldly success they may attain in whatever field they want to do, I want to support them in whatever they want to do in life. But I want them to be looked at and people to see that they are hard workers in whatever they do. You don't have to have a hard job to be a hard worker. But you have to be a hard worker no matter what job you have. Okay? Everybody has different kinds of jobs, but you must have that work ethic. It's important to me that they end up in whatever stage of life just being hardworking, down-to-earth men that will do whatever it takes to provide for their family. That's the kind of man I want them to grow up to be. And I don't care if that means they have to work at fast food to do it, day jobs, whatever. I don't care what it is. As long as they're just hardworking men that'll do whatever it takes. I kind of experienced that. I'll, I'll share this a little bit in my life, but that's kind of how my dad raised me, and I've shared the story with you guys before, and for time's sake, I won't get into all that, but there, as a quick summary, there was a time in my dad's life where he worked in the mines and he got laid off. He, he went from kind of high school to the mines, and he was actually making really good money at that time, working the big, powerful, you know, the huge, huge dump trucks and all this stuff, and then the mines shut down, and my dad suddenly lost all of his income. No education, no nothing, and I just watched my dad scramble. Um, there was a time where he was destroyed emotionally. There's something that happens inside the heart of a man when he feels like he cannot provide. I, I, I can't explain it to you unless you've been through it. I, I've been there before where you struggle, where you, you want to provide for your family, and you feel like you're, you can't the way that you want to. And it, it can devastate you. It can take you to a place where it breaks you down, and it's hard to move. It's hard to get going again because you go through it. And I watched my dad go through that, but then he started working three jobs. He was a janitor. He was cleaning pools. Uh, he was cleaning up at UPS. He was cleaning up at credit unions and just doing whatever he could. I remember going with him to help him vacuum. I was a little guy, 10, 11 years old, and I'd be vacuuming in the middle of the night you know, while he was going around cleaning everybody's desks. Just trying to make, just trying to earn a living. See, he was the type of guy that didn't mind getting his hands dirty to provide for his family. And he, and he humbled himself to do whatever he could do in the circumstances. There was things that he could not do, but, but whatever he could do, he did. That's kind of what was ingrained to me by watching that example. Um, when I came here in Oregon, I kind of told my wife the same thing. I said, you know, I, I don't know what, how this is going to go. I don't know if the church is going to hit right away and, you know, we'll be able to be supported by the ministry and, you know, and, and things will be a little bit easier for us. Or I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I had no idea that I'd be working full time for 11 years when I came. You know, that definitely was not part of the plan. But what I told her at that time was, because I wasn't working for the company, I, I, at the time I had been gone, I didn't even know what was going to happen really. I just told her, I said, whatever, whatever I have to do, I promise you I'll do. If I have to work two or three jobs, I'll do it. 
and do the ministry. I'll, I'll do whatever I have to do to provide for my family because I'm not going to not provide for my family for the sake of ministry. That's the responsibility that God has given me is I've got to take care of my family. That's also what I want my kids, you know, when, when they get to that position in life where they have their families or whatever, and whatever kind of catches them off guard and things happen in circumstances, I want them to be the same kind of men that will say, I will do whatever I have to do to take care of my family, whatever it is. If it means I have to be humbled, I'll be humbled. If I, if I have to do something I don't want to do, I'll do it. This is just what it's going to take. And, and that's, again, kind of that man of the soil that I, that I envision. But this isn't just true, my, my sons, it's true, my daughter, too, you know. You know, I want her to uh, recognize, I want her to have those same kind of traits that, again, that she'll do whatever she needs to do to make sure that she's taken care of. And when it comes to, like, work ethic, I want her to have that. And I'm grateful my kids do have these things. They're at a young age. They already kind of got it in them. It's really important as a family to, to do your very best. You, you can't control everyone. But you can do your very best to instill those work ethics and, and get them to understand the importance of it. Because I can tell you from being in a business world right now, that work ethic does not exist in many young people today. Uh, it's getting rarer and rarer. Uh, there's not very many servant-hearted people. There's not very many people that are willing to do whatever it takes. They kind of feel like they're entitled to things that they are not entitled to. So... I want her to have that, but I especially want that, you know, of her future husband. We've had that conversation, too. Matter of fact, there's, you know, we, we joke about it when we took her to Bible college. She's, <laughs> she knows exactly where I'm going. So, <laughs> at Bible college, we pull into the campus, and it was a day early, and they weren't letting anybody on campus. I'm like, let's see if we can get on campus, you know. She's like, no, I was excited. I wanted to see it, you know. Uh, and we pull in, and they have a security area, and they've got this security guard right there. I'm like, hey, yeah, hey right here. You know, here's this guy, you know. He's godly. He's got a job. You know, he cares about your safety. This is the kind of guy I want right here, you know. That makes him godly, a provider, and a protector. You know, <laughs> that's what I want for her, you know. And when, whoever she marries, you know, those things are important to me. I want somebody who's godly. I want somebody who's a provider, and I want somebody who's a protector. I want my daughter taken care of, and I want my grandkids taken care of, just like I would do for my kids, just like I would do for my wife. That's what I want. I don't want anything less, right? No father would want anything less for their daughter. And that's what. So we joke about it, but it's true. <laughs> you know, this is what I want. Sadly, like I said, it's, it's kind of a dying breed, and my heart breaks for this generation, and it kind of fears for the next. You know, I, I'm seeing that these, these values are not valued by much anymore. My dad modeled how to be a man of the soil. I'm trying to model how to be a man of the soil, and I, I hope that my kids model how to be a man or woman of the soil. I, I hope that that's something that goes on for future generations. But Noah was doing much more than just farming and planting a garden in those days. He was showing them what it takes to survive. He was, he was showing them what it, he was modeling. This is what it takes to live. He was, by his example, he was showing them. He, he didn't, like I said, he didn't, didn't say, you guys get out and tend to these things. Go plant the garden. Go take care of this. Go do that. He was modeling that. He was showing them what to do. But even with all that, and I, and I admire that. You can tell I just spent 20 minutes on my message on that. I, I admire that so much in Noah. But even with that, those great characteristics, you need to make no mistake. This man was by no means perfect. Not at all. And right here we're going to start reading about some of his biggest failures. In verse 20 we were told... Besides him being a man of the soil, he began by plant, planting a vineyard. You read that, it's like, no big deal, right? The guy likes grapes. <laughs> no big deal. Maybe he just wants some grapes. Had an urge. I'm going to plant some grapes. And then you read 21. And it says, he drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. 
Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over their shoulders, and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so Noah's life lasted 950 years, then he died. That spun out of control pretty quickly, didn't it? Here was, here was Noah. I mean, we just read, what was it in chapter 6, verse 9, right? It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. That was right before the flood. This is how Noah's life was at that time. And then he went on to build the ark after 120 years, and he was a preacher of righteousness. And he was doing the things in obedience that God had called him to do. He was a shining example of a godly man. A shining example in the midst of a wicked culture. But it just goes to show that no matter how great and godly of a man Noah was, nor how mightily God uses a person or has moved in and through their lives in times past, at best, a man is still just a man. A man is still just a man. And a man is thoroughly infected with the sinful heart despite his many years of godly living. Noah had lived over 600 years at this point and been a very godly man doing amazing things. But he still had a sinful heart. Now some justify this and they say, well, maybe just Noah stumbled into his sin, you know, not intentionally getting drunk. Maybe that was like a result of, you know, after the flood and all of a sudden now grapes were, had the ability to ferment and become, you know, alcohol. And maybe that's what happened to him. Nope. Noah knew exactly what he was doing. It says that he drank some of the wine, not grape juice. He made it into wine. I guarantee before the flood, there was plenty of people who had perfected making wine and perfected getting drunk. He knew exactly how to do it. Just up to that point, he had not done it. The truth is, he planted a vineyard to make wine. And he wanted to enjoy it as he pleased. Now, did he intentionally drink too much of the wine to get himself drunk? That part we don't know. You know, we don't know if, if he intentionally, you know, drank too much. The law had not been given at this point. So, I mean, you can't say that, you know, some people will argue that. Well, you know, it wasn't clearly stated that you should not get drunk. I, you know, okay. I think he knew better. Anybody who's ever been drunk know that you're certainly not in a godly state while you're drunk. I've never seen somebody become more righteous getting drunk. I've seen people think that they were more righteous while they were drunk. But certainly once they become sober, they realize I was not behaving very righteously at that moment. Maybe self-righteously. But regardless of whatever his initial intentions were, the result was he eventually got drunk. And there were horrible consequences in his life. And in the lives of those that he loved. That's what we know. In verse 22 it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over their, both of their shoulders. And walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father naked. Now there's uh, many opinions as to what actually went on with Ham here. 
uh, ranging from anywhere that he was mocking his father. In that culture especially, you know, you, there, you, there was this patriarch mindset that you just did not ever do anything like that to your father. I mean, you respected your father. I mean, we, we've never lived in a generation like what these people felt towards fathers. How they veneered them and how they, they just believed, highly revered them. They, they, they respected him a different way. We don't know if it was he was making fun of them. Some people, I mean, it's crazy. Some of the things that people say, um, that maybe there was some sexual abuse that occurred during that time while he was, while he was drunk. Some people say that it might have been by his grandson. And again, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of opinions on what actually took place at this time. But the problem is you can't substantiate any of it. It's everyone's opinion of what happened because they're looking at the consequences and they're trying to form, well, by looking at the consequences, then this might have happened. Well, we don't know what happened. Whatever happened was so disgraceful that God did not tell us. That's what we know. Whatever it was, was bad enough that God didn't... And I'll tell you what, there's some bad things that are disclosed in Scripture. Terrible things that happen to people. But for whatever reason, for Noah, God did not disclose what took place with him. The only thing that we know for certain... The only thing that we know for certain... Is that he saw his father's nakedness. He saw it. He saw him in this drunken state. And he chose to go and tell his two brothers. That's all we really know took place. And we're going to approach this text based on that information. Notice how differently Shem and Jepheth conducted themselves in the same situation. When, when he came out of the tent and when he started telling his brothers what he had seen, what his dad had done... It says, they responded completely differently. They took a cloak and they placed it over both their shoulders and walking backward, they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father naked. So this guy busts in. And again, I don't know what he was doing in the tent. I don't know if he was just going in, hey dad, I got a question. You know, I, I don't know if... If it was, he was spying on his dad, I, I don't know what took place, but he went into the tent, he saw him in that compromised situation, and then he came out and he was telling them all about it. And the two brothers, instead of saying, oh, i got to see this myself, I can't believe dad is such a hypocrite, or whatever it was, they actually took a cloth, like a covering of some sort, they put it over their shoulders, they walked backwards in, probably holding it like this, and they draped it over their father before they even looked at him. They wouldn't even look at him that way. They respected him so much. They weren't going to do that to him. What can we learn about the way that these boys kind of handled the situation? Well, at the most basic level, we can all see that the way that we handle other people's sin is really important to God. It's really, really important to God the way that we handle someone else's sin. Not our own sin. Someone else's sin. You know, when you hear of somebody sinning, and maybe you don't even like them, maybe you're, you're, you're glad that they sinned and they got busted or whatever, are you gloating over their sin? Are you like, yeah, good, he deserved to have that happen. I knew he was a jerk. Are you personally entertained by their destructive foolishness? I remember being personally entertained by some other people's personal foolishness. I remember that. <laughs> Come on. We live in a generation where we watch video after video after video of someone else doing something stupid, and we just love watching it. Yeah, I'm a sinner just like you. I watched a guy, I just caught my attention, where some guy... You know, some bully was talking trash to some kid, and he just knocked him out. And I found it in the flesh. I'm like, yeah! And then I'm like, read this. Oh! Man! Glad I didn't share that. You know? But are we entertained by somebody else's sinful decisions? Are we publicly broadcasting all their failures? 
When someone fails, do we do our best to go around and say, did you hear what so-and-so did or did you see this? Now, I mean, come on. Every time a police officer is in a situation where it's escalating, how many hundreds of phones are sitting there just recording, hoping that something goes wrong that they can use against that man? Can you imagine who in their right mind would want to be a police officer these days? Endure that kind of scrutiny, risking your life. Are you that kind of person? You know, I I want you to understand something. When you behave, when you and I behave in those ways towards somebody else's sin, you need to understand something. We are behaving just like Satan. And I know that's a strong word, but that's exactly what we're doing. Because when you're sinning, he is gloating over your sin. What did he do to Job? Oh, if you would take this from him, he would spit in your face. Don't you think he gloats and he just rejoices when you sin and there's destruction? Don't you think he's entertained by the things you're doing? Just like you used to get drunk with your buddies, but you love to see them do something stupid so that you could laugh at them for what they did? Don't you think he's entertained by your sin? Don't you think that he publicly pronounces everything you do as a believer? Shouts it from the rooftops? So that everyone knows? I mean, don't you think when you see a preacher fall or somebody and it's all over the news, don't you think that he's just like, ha ha, these hypocrites? Don't you think? Well, when you're acting like that, you're acting like him. That's who's influencing you. And that's why God takes it so seriously. How we handle other people's sin. The Bible calls us to handle these situations more like Shem and Japheth. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs the pot. This week I was getting so sick of it. I, I had so many of my guys coming to me and they were just backbiting. You know, I'm checking their teeth as they're talking to me. It's like, do you have any teeth left? You're, you're totally backbiting each other constantly. Telling me what this guy's doing, what this guy's doing. It just, it just was getting old. It was like I was, you know, in preschool or something. Trying, you know, I'm like, come on, I'm sick of hearing it. Would you guys get over this stuff? Stop looking for each other to mess up. Let's move on, you know. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. 1 Peter 4.8 says, oh, that's not the right one. Okay, so I missed that. I'll just read it to you. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's what we read in 1 Peter. Maintain a constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's that perfect picture of this, isn't it? Walking back and covering it. We're called to be agents of restoration, knowing that we too are simple beings with simple capacities. We have it. All of us. So when we're dealing with somebody else's failures, we have to remember this. Galatians 6.1 Brothers and sisters, if, any, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. He tells us when you're walking into that situation, you need to know something. You are just as capable as them of sinning. If not the same sin, something else. Be careful. Ham didn't handle it that way. And in verse 25 through 27, I'm not going to go through those verses specifically. I want you to see the consequences that took place in his life. There was consequences that occurred in his life and future generations because of his sin. But as for Noah, although it may be shocking that a man of Noah's stature actually sinned this way, it really should come as no surprise that something so terrible happened while he was drunk. You may be shocked that he actually did get drunk, but you should not be shocked at what happened 
when he was drunk. Anybody who's ever indulged in the sin of drunkenness or drugs, you know that things like this are just par for the course. You know it. Because often, drunkenness leads to greater and more damaging sins in our lives. So drunkenness is clearly a sin in the Bible. There's no doubt about it. People will debate me on, can a Christian drink? Sure, if you want to drink, go ahead. One thing I can tell you right now, though, is it is a sin to be drunk. And the only way that I can guarantee you will never get drunk is to not drink. Okay? So you be the you you go ahead and figure out what that line is for you. But as far as me, I don't drink at all. Because I know I am perfectly capable of sinning. So I don't do it. You make your own decisions. But I know 100% if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. Okay? It's that simple. The reality is that the sin of drunkenness often leads, and many times, sexual sin is tied to it. Many times. I can see it in my life when I was drinking. I can see it in the lives of others. Um, It's amazing how many times the sin of drunkenness involves some sort of sexual sin. It's, it's tied together many times. Either a sin that you commit while you're drunk or a sin that is committed against you. There are so many women that have been violated while they were drunk. If the veil was removed and we realized how many women have experienced something like that, I think we would be shocked. Much of it goes on without anybody knowing, but those two people. But it affects the women for the rest of their life. Sure, the Lord can restore, can redeem, strengthen, but I know that it's a wound that's always there. I know that. Drunkenness invites disaster. Either what you're going to do or what's going to be done to you. That's why what Noah did was so terrible. Just on the base level. That's why it was so terrible. There's a Japanese proverb that I love. I just found this. It says, first the man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes the man. That is profoundly true. First the man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes the man. Controls them. Women too, right? This is not just, I get it, it says man, but this is true for women as well, right? This is not just something that men go through. It can destroy your life. Do you think that Noah didn't know this though? I guarantee he knew it. He lived in the most wicked generation that ever lived. I guarantee there was people that were drunkards at that time. Garrett, he saw the disaster, but he still did what? He still planted a vineyard. What was the first mistake? He planted the vineyard. Did he? Have, it didn't. He did it with the sole intent of making wine. The first step should have been he should have never planted the vineyard. It should have never been done. Maybe he thought he could handle it better than all those other guys that got wiped out in the flood. Maybe he thought, I can control this. Maybe he thought, well, I have a good relationship with the Lord, so the Lord will forgive me. I'm righteous among my generation. Remember? Chapter 6, verse 9. 
Maybe God will just wink at this sin in my life. Maybe he felt like he finally deserved some indulgence after so many years of walking the straight line. I don't know what his reason was. It doesn't tell us. But whatever it was, I can tell you this. It could have been avoided had he not planted the vineyard. The real question is, what vineyard have you planted in your life? What vineyard have you planted? What I mean by that is, what things have you put into place for a potential sinful event later? I I see people plant vineyards on Facebook, befriending friends that they probably should not have befriended. Old relationships renewed. I see people plant vineyards on going on websites that they should not be looking at. Planting a vineyard, not not ripping out that weed. I see people plant vineyards by having on their top covered of their fridge, maybe above the fridge where the kids can't see it or get to it, putting that special bottle of whiskey there just in case things get tough or if we ever have to use it. See, we we plant vineyards in different ways. Just in case I can control this thing. And then once it spins out of control and there's consequences in people's lives, then we realize why God said, you shouldn't have planted the vineyard. You shouldn't have clicked on that. You shouldn't have pursued that relationship. You shouldn't have gone to that place. You shouldn't have said that thing. You shouldn't have done that thing. He, he was there. The Holy Spirit was there all along telling you, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. But we push through it because we think I, it's just a vineyard. It's just grapes. It's no big deal. I can handle it. But see, if you don't plant the vineyard, you don't make the wine, and you don't get drunk. Okay? It's simple. Now, I don't expect you to go out and rip out your gardens. <laughs> Unless it's a vineyard, maybe. <laughs> You'd be the one to make that decision, but... I do want you to leave here with just remembering this. And it doesn't have to symbolize just alcohol. I think it's a good description of sin. First the man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink. Then the drink takes the man. That's how sin operates, whatever sin it is. You take the drink first. No big deal. Now there's something inside you craving that. Eventually, you become enslaved to that sin. The drink takes the man. This is why we have to be careful not to plant vineyards of any sort in our life. Now, if God is stirring up conviction in your life of any sort, and and there's things in your life that he's addressing, listen, deal with it. Take whatever steps are necessary. Don't allow that thing to be a future cause of destruction in your life or in the lives of somebody that you love. Don't let it destroy your families. Don't let it destroy your loved ones. Don't let it destroy your reputation. Don't let it steal all the good that God has been doing in your life because for 600 years, God did a lot of good through Noah and in his life. And it wasn't that his life was wasted, but man, doesn't your heart just break for him? You lived all that time. You saw so much good. Why? You didn't need that. I think our heart goes out the same way for us, you know, when, when I think of 
us. And, and when I see the results of sin in people's lives and the horrible consequences, I just want you to know as well that, and if it breaks my heart, then how much more does it break the Lord's heart? And if we can please just be honest for a minute, how many things do we regret in life that we wish we just would have ripped out that vineyard? <laughs> you know? Yeah. How many things, right? None of us are sitting here perfect. <laughs> All of us can think back to, if I could only go back in time. Every day is a new start, though. Yeah. That's why you have this restart, right? Yeah. That's why there's still a rainbow out there. But let's be wise living in that age. Let's not give the enemy an opportunity to be gloating over our sin, to be entertained by our sin, or to proclaim our sin to everyone else to destroy our reputation. Let's not arm him with these things. Let's disarm him. Let's take this away. And let's do it the way that God wants us to do. And let's skip this part in our story, right? Let's skip this part. Okay? If we're born again, let's, let's go from that point on. Just like you said, Mark, let, let's go forward. Learn from that. Let's not get stuck in this rut. Yeah. Self-inflicted wounds. Let's not do that. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that uh, you give us this example. And, man, it's, it's tough to understand how a man like Noah fell into something like this. But as a, as a sinner myself... I guess I can see it. it. It could happen to any of us. None of us are perfect. We all fail. We all make mistakes. But those sins don't just like pop up and suddenly take us. We, we have things in our lives that we just allow to remain or maybe we plant it in our life and, and it grows and next thing you know it takes over. Lord, help us to rip those things out, not because we just want to be good Christians, but, Father, because we want to avoid the damage. We want to be close to you, Lord. We don't want to be further from you. We don't want our sin to separate us from you. Lord, I just pray that if there's anybody that's here today or perhaps listening to this teaching or watching it, Lord, I pray that if this is a message for them, give them the strength to repent. And repentance, Lord, Give them the real repentance, the turning from their sin. Your word says that even Jesus himself taught that if our right hand causes us to sin, cut it off. And that wasn't so that we'd walk around with one arm, Lord. It was to show that we have to take our sin seriously because it's so devastating. Lord, give them the strength to do whatever they have to do. The courage to do the right thing. Let there be the days of refreshing that can only come from that forgiveness and that right standing with you, Lord. Refresh them, strengthen them once again. God, just help us to be wise to the things that the enemy may use against us. Help us to see it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.